And as we talk through this passage today, I pray again that we would just allow God to speak to our hearts. We're going to have one more word of prayer, ask God's blessing upon his word. And again, as I pray, you pray that God would speak to you individually, that he would speak to our church collectively, that we would be the people that he desires for us to be. So let's pray. God, we love you and thank you again for the privilege that it is to gather God, we thank you for the songs that we can sing. I I thank you for that new song we sang today, Goodness of God. And God, truly, you have been good to us, and you are good to us, and I pray that we would strive to live in that goodness as we follow your word. And God, as we think about the time when, when you will send Jesus to return to take us home to be with you, God, let us live with eternity in sight. Let us live with this idea that, that everything that we do matters. And as we look at this text today, God, I pray that you'd show us how we can live for that day even further. We thank you again uh, for, for allowing us to gather, be with Children's Church downstairs, be with the nursery workers. God, be with us up here. May we all collectively hear from you today and, and grow deeper in your word together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I said last week, the connectedness of the Bible really is a big deal. Uh, the way God puts things together in each book uh, reminds us that he has a purpose in us reading them sequentially. If we were to back up to Mark 5 and, and then fast forward to where we are in Mark 6 today, we would understand that, that there's a process that Jesus was taking the disciples through to grow their trust in him, to grow their faith in him. And I would say that's still the process that we're going through today. Has anybody had to grow in your faith towards God a little bit? Maybe you had to grow in your trust towards God and his word and what he said And so today, as we continue through the journey of uh, Mark's gospel, we're going to talk about this idea of the care and compassion of Christ. Uh, One of the best ways to let somebody know that you care for them is to actually show them that you care for them. We've all had people say to us that, that they care for us, they love us, but then they've kind of dropped the ball when it comes to showing that care or demonstrating that care. And before we get too negative towards those people who have dropped the ball in showing their care to us, let's probably also be honest and say we've dropped the ball a few times as well. And so as we look at this passage in Mark's gospel today, we're going to see that the disciples began to understand the the care and concern of Christ, the compassion of Christ, in a way that they never understood it before. As Mark continues in his gospel, we'll see that he continues on the journey of showing how the disciples are growing in their understanding of who Christ is. As we've said, he he showed them his power in previous encounters. He, he, he showed us, Mark has shown us what he has taught the disciples. And now again in this passage, we're going to see his genuine and true concern for those he was living around. As we get into the text today, I want to ask us a simple question. And the question is this, how am I actively and genuinely caring for others? I think sometimes we can have a heart or a sentiment in our lives that says, I care for other people. I think about them. Maybe I pray for them from time to time. But how are we actively demonstrating that care? You see, if Christ only told us he cared for us, but then he never showed us the care that he had for us by dying on the cross, we would still be hopeless. But he didn't just speak the words. He lived it out as he gave his life for the sins of men to be the savior of all who would place their faith and trust in him. And while we can't save people from their sins, the the truth is through our acts of compassion, we can point them to the Savior that can save them from their sins. So I would ask today as we think about Christ's care and compassion and concern for us, that we would ask ourselves, how are we actively 
caring for others. Caring for others in a Christ-like way is a sign that we have understood the care that Christ has shown us. Caring for others in reality flows from us resting in the care that Christ has provided and continues to provide for us. Caring for others is a sign that we are secure in Christ's love for us. You see, if we're caring only to be cared for, meaning we're only being kind so that kindness will be returned to us, then we've misunderstood Christ's definition of what care and compassion and concern is. See, Christ didn't care so that we could pay him back, for in reality, we could never pay him back. And when we show care and concern for others, we can't go into it with that mindset, for if we do, we'll become bitter and resentful towards those who don't respond in the way that we think they should. The big idea this morning is this, the care I show to others is directly connected to how I understand Christ's care for me. It's interesting, as our world has changed over the last few years, it it became apparent that selfishness was on the rise. Did anybody else notice that? That when trials and calamities happened, people turned internally and said, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to make sure that I have everything I need. And in reality, Christians need to live the exact opposite of that. That's the example we see in the early church. That's the example we see in our Savior. And I would ask, is that the example we see in our own lives? So two things this morning as we go through this text that I hope will be a help to us as we think about the care and compassion of Christ. First thing we see in verses 30 through 32 is that Christ cares for his disciples. Again, the passage says, And the apostles gathered themselves unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come, ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. It's been busy. It seems the more time goes on, the more this response is the norm. You ask somebody how their day is going and they're quick to respond, oh, it's been busy. You ask somebody how their week has been or how how life has been in general and we are quick to say at times, oh, it's been busy. You ask somebody about their year and they give the same response. Maybe they throw in another vague descriptive word like it's been good, but then they follow it up quickly with what? It's been busy. Life is busy, and as time goes on, uh, I'm understanding, at least in raising four kids, that life is only going to get busier. Uh, Sometimes I feel like I I, I can't even enjoy time at home because I'm always thinking about what's coming next, what things we have to accomplish, what things that we have to get done. We get this idea that life is busy, and sometimes we wish we could go back to simpler times, like Little House on the Prairie, where the only thing we had to worry about was that mean nasty old Nellie Olson and what trouble she was going to cause. That's not reality, right? Life is busy and it's going to get busier. Life was busy for the disciples. And so as Christ looks at them, he says, hey, we've got to take a break. In a passage previous to this one, before the beheading of John the Baptist, Jesus had gathered the apostles together, the disciples together, and he sent them out with great power to do great works. He sent them out with a great message of repentance because that was what was truly going to change 
people's lives. And then we last week saw the beheading of John the Baptist and, and the wickedness of Herod. And then in this passage, Mark picks up the story again with the disciples coming back to Jesus. They were over the moon of all the things that they had done, telling Jesus about the people they had healed, the interactions that they had had, telling Jesus the things that they had taught and how they had ministered to individuals on, on a very simple level. And Jesus, looking at their excitement, understanding all that they had done in verse number 31, looks at the disciples and says, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Now this seems counterculture, counterintuitive of what should be happening. Jesus, the ministry is ramping up. Jesus, more and more people are listening to us. Jesus, not only can you do miracles now, but we can do miracles now as well. So now instead of one person doing all these great works, Jesus, there's 13 people that can accomplish great and mighty tasks for the sake of the kingdom. And in the midst of a time where the ministry was growing, where more people were flocking to Jesus, where more people were coming under the teaching of the disciples as they reiterated the messages that they had heard from their teacher, Jesus, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, hey guys, it's time for you to take a break. It's time for you to stop the work that you've been doing. And it's time for you to, to settle yourselves again, to feed your souls instead of just running off of the energy or the excitement of the things that have been happening around you. Have you ever been there in life where, where things just seem to go well and you want to just continue and, and maybe work is, is moving in the right direction, your family's moving in the right direction, and, and you just don't want to stop for anything because you fear that stopping is going to mess things up? You see, Jesus was teaching the disciples a valuable lesson here that if they don't take time to rest, and not just have physical rest, but have spiritual rest, then they're going to get to a point in their lives where they are useless to the ministry of Jesus. As they were running around doing these great works, performing these great miracles, there could have been something in the disciples that said, hey, we don't need Jesus anymore. He's given us this power. He's given us the message. We can go off on our own and do our own thing. And in the busyness of their lives, when things were ramping up, Jesus said, hey, guys, it's time to ramp things down so that you can get focused again on what truly matters. Now, Dan, are you saying that, that ministering to those individuals that they ministered to didn't matter? Are you saying that the, the ones that they got to preach to, that those people didn't matter? No, but what Jesus was doing was collectively calling them to recenter and refocus their lives on him. And how many of us today would say that we have been in that place in life where we have been so busy and things are going so well that we begin to forget about the one who called us to do these things in the first place? So as Jesus is calling the disciples back to this time of rest, as he's looking at them intently, he shows them his care for them as he tells them to lay aside the work and take care of themselves for a season so that they could, be, they could do a greater work in the seasons to come. There's an appeal to being a workaholic. Has anybody ever faced that before? The, the, the more you do, the, the more you want to do. The more you accomplish at times, it brings a satisfaction that, that other things don't bring because you can physically see the work that's being done. But how many of us know somebody or maybe even ourselves who have been a workaholic to the point of, of burning ourselves out to where we were no good for those around us or no good for the employer that employed us? You see, as Christ commissioned the disciples to go out, 
He sent them intently to do a great work. But as he calls the disciples back to himself, he does this intently as well because he wants to make sure that they're focused on the right thing. Now, as they came back to Jesus and they began to tell him all the things that they had done, I don't think that they were coming back in arrogance. I think they were truly excited, genuinely excited. But if they weren't careful, it could have gotten to the point, as I said, where they said, look at what we can do. We no longer need Jesus. And any time we get to the point where we say, look what I can do, I no longer need Jesus, we are setting ourselves up for failure. And so Jesus calls them to come apart. The old preacher, I think it was Vance Havner, said, you got to come apart before you come apart, right? you got to sometimes take some rest uh, for, for yourself to, to nourish your body, to nourish your soul, to take care of yourself on a personal level so that you can take care of uh, other people down the road. It's like in the airplane, when the masks drop from the ceiling, who do you care for first? Yourself. Why? Because they're teaching you to be selfish. No, because if you don't put the oxygen mask on you, guess what? The ones that you're trying to help, you're not going to be able to help because you'll be of no good. You'll have passed out at that point. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples a valuable lesson to come apart and rest. And as true as this is on a physical level, we don't like to often admit that we need rest. The reality is we do. God gave us this example as he created the world in six literal days. And on the seventh day, he rested. He didn't rest because he was weary from his labor. He rested to set an example for us to follow that we would weekly Sabbath to take time off and reflect and remember the goodness of God towards us so that we can refuel ourselves to begin again. I was talking to somebody just this morning that uh, admitted that the, the idea of working seven days a week is beginning to crush them. Friend, understand we weren't designed to work seven days a week. We weren't designed to to go, go, go all the time. We were designed to live in the example that God gave to us. Now, the opposite of this is also true that we're not designed to be lazy people, right? God has given us the ability to work He's given us opportunity to work, and when we work, we should do all we do to the best of our ability. Why? So that those around us can see we're not just working for an employer, but ultimately we're working for our Heavenly Father. That those around us would see that He has gifted us, that He has enabled us. But here in this moment, Christ called the disciples to rest. And as the physical rest was needed, I think in in a deeper way, Christ was calling them to a spiritual rest. He was calling them back to remember that, hey, I'm the one who has started a good work in you, and I am the one who is going to finish that work. As a pastor, there are times in my life where I think that if I'm not doing something, then everything is going to fall apart. Everything is going to come apart at the seams. Nothing is going to go well. And I often, in my own mind, in my own heart, think that the fruit that we see, and this is me admitting things that I don't often like to admit about myself, but the fruit that we sometimes see is directly connected to me. Friend, understand the fruit that we see is is the fruit of Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of the gospel. And so if I run myself ragged because I think things are going to fall apart if I take a day off, understand I'm doing you a disservice, I'm doing my family a disservice, but when I rest in the vine and allow him to produce a good work in me and through me, and as you rest in the vine and allow him to do a good work in you and through you, he's going to produce fruit that we could have never even thought possible. 
And so I would ask us this morning, as Christ called the disciples to rest, first off, are you resting physically? You say, I didn't come to church today to hear Dan talk about taking a break, taking a vacation, but I think it's a biblical principle. Are you taking care of yourself in a physical way? That's in part what Jesus was calling the disciples to do. But more so, are you taking care of yourself in a spiritual way? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ? Are you resting in what Jesus says about you? Are you resting and allowing him to produce the fruit that he wants to produce, understanding that it's under the sovereign control of God? Are you resting in your position, knowing that nothing can take the good gifts that God has given you away from you when it comes to being a child of God, one that God loves from eternity, one that God has prepared a hope and a future for in eternity future? Are you resting in the goodness of God? That's song that we sang today all my life you have been faithful all my life you have been so so good so with every breath that i am able i'll i'll sing to the goodness of god friends god is good and one of god's good gifts that he has given us is the idea of physical rest in the way of sabbath but also the idea of spiritual rest understanding that we are secure in him So many people try to find their identity in what they do instead of what's been done for them. And friend, if you're here today and you're a believer, if you're a child of God, rest in what Jesus Christ has done for you. Some people ask me, why don't you call yourself Pastor Dan? If you've been around any time, you'll notice that most of the time I reference myself as Dan. And the reason that is, is in my mind, it's a mind game. Because I never want to be known for what I do. I want to be known for who I am. So what does that mean? I'm Dan. I'm a pastor, but that's not who I am. Ultimately, what am I? I'm a child of God, as Sarah said this morning. And so I don't, I'm not finding, and I'm not saying people that do this are wrong. For me personally, I'm not finding my identity in the work that I do week in and week out. I'm finding my identity in what God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, are you resting in those things? Are you resting in what Christ has done? Are you taking him at his word? Or are you living with this angst and anxiety thinking that if I don't perform, then he's going to kick me out of the family? Friend, if that's your mindset, then you have misunderstood the Bible altogether. Because if you are in Christ, you can never be out of Christ. If he has saved you, then you are saved. It would be good for you and I to rest in that reality day in and day out. But what about those in the room today who have never found the rest that Christ provides? Hebrews chapter 4, I won't turn there for time's sake, but verses 1 through 13, read it on your own, is a great description of the rest that Jesus has called us to. It's not a rest where we earn his love or earn his favor through the things that we have done, but it's a rest that comes when the perfect word of God examines our hearts and we realize that we are flawed individuals who have no hope outside of God in this world. And when we understand the deep flaws within ourselves, we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ, asking for for forgiveness from our sins, repenting of the things that were done, and resting in him alone as our Savior. Friend, if you're trying and striving and working To find rest, understand this, you will never find it in this life. But if you come to God in God's way, if you come to God through the person of Jesus Christ, you will find a rest that you have never experienced in any other thing. So I would ask you today, will you come and rest in him? 
Will you rest in the finished work of Christ? Will you rest in what Christ has to say about? Will you follow the example of rest that God has given us in his word? This is what he called the disciples to. And this is what he has called us to as well. And so they were successful. Things were going well. And Jesus says, come yourselves apart into a desert place and rest for a while. Friend, if you're here today thinking that everything is falling upon your shoulders, understand that you're mistaken. You don't hold things together. God does. You're not the one that is making the earth go through its cycles and seasons. God does. And so if we're going to rest in anything, I pray that we would rest in him. And so Christ cared for the disciples, these ones that he was investing in, these ones that he was mentoring and tutoring and training, that he would then send out at the end of the Gospels again to preach the Gospel to every creature, to to make the message of Jesus known in this moment when they had gone through a season of busyness, he looks at them and says, I want you to come apart and rest. I want you to come apart and rest. I think we would do well to do the same. Rest in him and rest from our work. The second thing we see Christ do in this um, passage of Scripture is that Christ had compassion on the people. Christ had compassion on the people. I'm not going to read the whole passage for time's sake, uh, but we'll go through it kind of verse by verse and just kind of outline some things that are there. And so the story continues. Jesus and the disciples uh, are boarding a boat, and they're going to a, a remote location where the disciples can rest probably where Jesus can pour into them. If you think rest is a sin, what was Jesus doing in Mark chapter 5 when the storm was raging? He was sleeping in the back of the boat. And so Jesus understood the exhaustion, the the physical exhaustion that came from the type of ministry that these people were involved in. He understood that the apostles were probably running ragged at this point, and so he encourages them to come apart and rest. And as the, the boat takes off, The people on shore see that Jesus is leaving and they've got to find where he's going. And the Bible says that they take off by foot and they make it to where Jesus was going before Jesus ever even got there. I guess there is some cases for running in the Bible. Um, I would have been one of those stragglers that came up after all the teaching was over. Like, what did I miss? And they said, you should have seen it. Jesus fed, you know, over 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. And I'd be like... Is there any leftover? Because I I did not make it in time because I'm not a runner at all. But these people took off running. And they beat Jesus and the disciples to where they were going. In verse number 34, the Bible says that Jesus steps out of the boat. He he steps out of uh, of the, the, the cover that he was under. And he sees all these people. And the Bible says that he was moved with compassion. Anytime you see that phrase moved with compassion or compassion in the Gospels, it is most likely speaking of Jesus' concern for those that he was ministering to. This idea of being moved with, with compassion is being touched in the most inward part. It would, it would, it would be the idea of, of your bowels. The Greek word is actually where we get our word spleen from. And so it's talking about from the inward parts, Jesus was moved with compassion towards these people that had come to where he was. I don't know about you, but this is encouraging to me and it encourages me to rest in him because the Savior is never bothered when I come to him. He's never so weary that his emotions control him to the point where he wants nothing to do with me. He is never out of touch in reality. And so as we saw Christ call for the disciples to rest in him, the reason he was calling them to rest was because he was a compassionate Savior. 
And friend, as he was a compassionate Savior then, understand, he is still a compassionate Savior today. When he looked at these people, the Bible says that he steps out of the boat and he sees them, and they were like sheep having no shepherd. This is really a reference to the Old Testament. Passages like 1 Kings 22:17, Ezekiel 34:5, Zechariah 10:2, where the people of God, the nation of Israel, was often looked at as, as sheep having no shepherd. And sheep that don't have a shepherd are going to find themselves in mischief. They're going to find themselves in, in situations that are filled with trouble. They're going to find themselves in situations that are dangerous to them. And so as Jesus looks at these people, he's not slamming them. But rather, when he says they're like a sheep, a group of sheep that have no shepherd, he's revealing that he is the one who can meet the need that they have. He's the great shepherd. He's the one who who desires to lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so he looks out and he sees this crowd, and he sees them as being sheep without a shepherd, and he immediately begins to heal them and provide for all their needs and do everything that they wish would be done, right? No. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and what does he do? He immediately begins to teach them. And again, this is the gospel's way of revealing to us that the primary ministry of Christ and the primary ministry of the apostles and the primary ministry of the church today is not to do signs and wonders and miracles, but is to simply teach the word of God. Why why does Paul say in Ephesians that God has given gifts to the church by way of pastors and teachers and evangelists? Not because pastors and teachers and evangelists are something special, but that's because it's always been God's desire to teach his people. Not just have them blindly follow and do what they're told, but to teach them the path to walk in. And so Christ sees them and he has compassion on them and he begins to teach them in verse 34 many things. And I don't know about you, but I'm curious what Jesus taught them on that day. What would it be like to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him teach. Well, in reality, I think it would be very much like opening up the word of God and having the spirit of God feed our souls through reading, through preaching, and through teaching. And I'm not saying I'm Jesus. I'm very far from Jesus, as you guys know. But I am saying the method that we use today is the very same method that Jesus used back then to expound on the word of God, to show the person of Jesus Christ. We see that example throughout the Bible that it's always pointing to something greater. And so as Jesus sat and taught them, likely he took what they were familiar with, these Jewish people, the the idea of the law and all the things that went along with it, and he used them to expound upon himself. And friend, that's exactly what we're doing this morning. We're taking what God has given us in his word and we're using it to point ourselves to Jesus Christ. So Jesus was moved. He, he loved them. He had compassion on them, and he began to teach them. Well, what does this mean for the disciples? It means their vacation was cut short. We don't know exactly what that looked like, and we don't know exactly how long Jesus intended that to be. But in some way, at the very same time, it does seem like Jesus was shielding the disciples because he took the brunt of this teaching opportunity upon himself. He says, I'm going to be the one that do the teaching. And as time goes on, we see that the disciples were were likely a little bit annoyed at the situation. Here they were thinking, vacation. And Jesus says, hey, I just got to do a little bit of work. I've been guilty of that with my kids. I know what that's like from time to time. 
And so Jesus begins to teach them. As time goes on, the day gets late, and the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you need to send them away so that they can get food. We don't have enough for them. Just send them away and, and pro- so that they can provide for their own needs. Now, what, what does that show you? That the disciples were not yet thinking like Christ would think. They were thinking of the crowd. They were thinking of all the work that it was going to take to feed these people. And they come to Jesus and say, hey, send them away. They were concerned about themselves, not about the masses of people. Jesus looks at them and basically tells them in verse 37, he says, you give them to eat. You find food and feed them. The disciples look at Jesus and say, come on, Jesus. You know we don't have the resources for this. this. This 200 penny worth that the King James uses would be the equivalent of eight months wages. We don't have an extra eight months wages sitting in Judas' bag. And if they did, we probably could assume that Judas wouldn't have given it to him anyways. <laughs> so they're, they're in a bind. What do we do? Jesus says, well, go out in verse 38 and see how many loaves you have. Probably again annoyed, walking through what was 5,000 men. The other gospels say, you know, that was, there, was, there was women and children besides the men that were counted. So upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people, possibly, maybe twelve to 20,000 people. Can you imagine walking through a crowd saying, hey, you have any food we can have? You have any extra bread that, that was packed for you that, that we could have? Oh, I promise we're going to do a miracle. Would you be a little bit skeptical, right, if somebody come and says, hey, give me your food and I'll provide for everybody? You're like, yeah, right, I'm, I'm saving that for myself. And there likely was other food in the crowd. But what did they find? They found one little boy who said, hey, I've got some food. I've got five loaves of bread and I've got two fish. And he willingly gave those things to Jesus. And the disciples brought them back. And they say, we've got these five loaves and two fish. But but what are these among so many? This isn't going to do anything. Again, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, go tell the people to sit down, which would have been a task in and of itself. Tell the people to be seated. Organize the people. And so they got the people to begin to sit down in in groups of 50 and groups of hundreds. And all of a sudden, Jesus took that little boy's lunch. And the Bible says that he looked up to heaven. Why? Because his focus was always in the right place. The disciples came and said, hey, Jesus, this is too much. We can't do these things. The disciples were were, uh, on track of of getting off track earlier when Jesus says, hey, it's coming time uh, for you to take a rest. But Jesus was always looking in the right direction. So he looks up to heaven and he blesses the food and he begins to break the bread and he gives it to the disciples basket after basket after basket and they go to person after person and everybody gets some food and i love how mark reveals to us that jesus then divides the fish among them all i picture jesus walking around saying here's a little fish for you and here's a little bit of fish for you and everybody ate and was full and jesus tells the disciples to go and pick up the leftovers and there just so happened to be 12 baskets left and i don't this is conjecture, but I would like to assume that Jesus made sure there was 12 baskets left over so each one of the doubting disciples could have a basket for themselves. Say, Jesus would look at them and say, you were so focused on yourselves. 
I called you apart to rest because I was concerned for you. Sure, we found ourselves in the, in the middle of another opportunity, but who wouldn't when there were masses of people there, thousands of people there, who wouldn't in their right heart and right mind do something that would direct them to the reality of Christ? Any, any good Christian would do that. And the disciples were so self-focused that instead of having compassion on the people, they were thinking, man, this is going to be a lot of work for me. Man, Jesus, this is going to take all the resources that we have. Jesus, we should have been on vacation right now. And look what you're making us do. You're making us work again. And so while Jesus shows compassion to the masses, in reality, Jesus was also also showing compassion on the disciples. And he subtly and silently rebuked them as they each had their own basket of fish left over. Did they know that Jesus could have provided for the crowds of people? Sure. They'd already seen him turn water into wine. They had already seen him calm the storm and heal those that were sick and raise the dead. What they should have done in that moment is come to Jesus and say, Jesus, it's late. You've preached another long sermon and these people have got to get some food. And Jesus, we need you to do a miracle. We know that you can. We know that you can, Jesus. Can you provide for them so that they can be fed spiritually? but also be fed physically, and in the feeding physically, they would be fed spiritually again because they would see a work done that no man could do. But instead they thought with their natural mind. They didn't think with the mind of faith. They in some ways got upset that the crowd was there, and they got upset that Jesus was taking time with the crowd. So as Jesus had compassion on the crowd, he had compassion on the disciples, and friend, as we think about our lives, can we admit today that Christ has been compassionate to us? Think of what God has provided for you. We talk about this regularly, but the things that you have are not because you're a good person, friend. The things that you and I have are because God is a gracious God. The ability to work, the ability to breathe is because God is a gracious God. The ability to afford things in this life that we enjoy is because God is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. I pray today that we would understand his compassion for us. And then when we understand his compassion for us, we would allow that to shape us to be compassionate to those around us. How many of us us have seen a situation maybe in recent weeks We see somebody in a a difficult spot and we can come up with all the solutions in our mind as to how they could have never been in that spot to begin with. Do you know that God doesn't do that towards you? He sees you in your need and he has pity on you. And if God does that for us, friend, shouldn't we do that for others? Shouldn't we have compassion and pity and, and, and take care of those around us? The disciples said the right things. They, they acted like they were concerned because they were saying, Jesus, you're teaching too long. Send the people away so that they can get food for themselves. And it reminded me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. See, having an idea of compassion in your mind 
and saying the right words of compassion towards those in need, but never demonstrating that compassion through the acts of your life reveals that you have missed and misunderstood the very compassion that God has had on us. I'm guilty of this. Being compassionate, sometimes it's difficult because it takes you away from what you want to be doing to something else. And we've all experienced that. We've experienced it with our kids. Who's ever said a harsh word to your children because you didn't have a heart of compassion towards them in the moment? Who's ever not been invested in somebody else's life, maybe at work or in the community, because you knew it was going to cost you something? Aren't you glad that God didn't calculate the cost and the return on investment and say, it's not worth sending my son? Though it would save millions, my son is pure, he's righteous, he's holy. He's never been in sin. He he is spotless. And yet, as God looked at the world, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He acted on his heart of compassion to provide a way for humanity to be saved. And as he has done that, I pray that we would respond appropriately. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand you being here in this moment is because God is compassionate to you. You might be here today because Sarah invited you to hear her presentation, but understand that is just a means for God to let you hear the word that can change your soul. As Sarah gave her testimony, she said she was a sinner. She is a sinner, but God's grace is abundant. And understand there is a room full of people here that are sinners as well. But God's compassion and grace is abundant enough to save us. And understand today, he can save you as well if you'll come to him by faith. And for those of us who are saved, I pray this morning that as we think about the compassion and care that we have been shown, that we would also be a compassionate people towards those in need. It's interesting in the Gospels that the physical fulfillment of a need always went hand in hand with the spiritual fulfillment of a need. Jesus didn't just heal people or do miracles because it was a cool thing to do that would help people now, but he healed people and did miracles to point them to the greater miracle, which was salvation in his name. I wonder today, will we actively live a life of care and compassion to those in our world? I want to close this morning by reading the 23rd Psalm. As we think about the care and compassion of Christ, this psalm does an excellent job of revealing to us once again of the love of the Savior towards us. The psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David says, I'm not a shepherdless sheep. I've got the great shepherd. and he, He's giving me everything I need in my life. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sounds like the whole Christian life is going to be great, right? Easy, simple. But the psalmist goes on and says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you understand today why the psalmist desired to follow the shepherd so passionately? It's because he understood the shepherd would lead him in the places that he wanted him to go. 
Friend, we are like sheep. We are like sheep, whether we want to admit it or not. But do you understand there's one who desires to be the shepherd of your life, not just in a physical sense, but also the shepherd of your soul? And I would ask you today, are you looking to that shepherd to lead you in the way that he desires for you to go? The tender care and compassion of the great shepherd will transform us. And when this transformation happens, we will be able to show compassion in a way that points people to him. And so as we wrap things up this morning, I would simply ask you this. First off, are you resting in the care that the shepherd has provided? Saved or unsaved? The reality is we can both go in the wrong direction on this. Again, if you're here today and you're not saved, he's calling you to rest in him. In Matthew 11, he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a rest that this world cannot provide. Will you come to him today, turn away from your sins, and turn to him by faith alone, understanding that he is the hope of all people? Will you turn to him today? And then for those of us who are believers, are we resting in the care of Christ? If your Christianity is performance-based, thinking that I have to keep a certain level of of goodness in my life or else God's not going to love me or else God's going to kick me out. Friend, you have misunderstood the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that once you're a Christian, you can go live any way you want to because that's not what a true Christian would do. A true Christian would understand the goodness, the abundant life that God has provided through his son, Jesus Christ, and they would desire to walk in that goodness day in and day out. But I, I do ask you this As we close, if you're here today and you are a believer, are you resting in his goodness? Are you resting in the grace that he provides when you've messed up, when you've wandered away? Are you resting in the love and compassion and care that he has for you? And friend, when we do this, we will be able to live in love and compassion and care towards those who don't know Christ. It's funny that one of the greatest ways that God will open up doors of opportunity to witness to the person of Jesus Christ is when we actively show compassion to those around us. Friends, if they don't know that you care, they're not going to listen to what you have to say. But when we show them that we care, when we're involved in their lives, who knows when, but God will likely open up a door for us to then speak the truth of the gospel to them. I wonder, are we living in the care and compassion of our Savior, Jesus Christ?